This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the fruit of the Spirit. Psalm 15, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, who casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we come to your word again and again, thirsty for your presence, hungry for your voice. And we pray that as we hear these words, that you would use them by your spirit to form and to shape us in the image of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. For those of you who are new, I am Pastor Bart. And one thing you do need to know about me is that I am no fan of superhero movies. And I've been waiting patiently the last 10, 15, 20 years for Hollywood to finally milk the Marvel and DC canons dry so that we can have some real movies. But there is one character uh, from the superhero world that I do admire a great deal, and that is Commissioner James W. Gordon. You know, Batman's, sorry, the Batman's most trusted ally has no superpowers of his own. He doesn't have Bruce Wayne's billions of dollars. He doesn't possess a triple-weave Kevlar titanium suit. He doesn't have a turbocharged, bulletproof Gordon mobile. Commissioner Gordon takes a subway to work like an ordinary mortal. He drives around in a squad car. And he has a heart condition caused by a lifetime of chronic smoking. Gordon's only weapons are his police revolver, his toothbrush mustache, and his unswerving personal integrity. Because Gotham City is rotten and decaying, isn't it? It's not just the drug-dealing, sex-trafficking criminal underworld. Corruption has spread through almost the entire police department, the district attorney's office, all the way up to the mayor. Everyone is on the take, pretty much everyone except for James W. Gordon. And as we watch our way through the Batman movies, we feel like, man, is Gotham City really even worth saving? You know, Batman might be lurking in the shadows as the personification of justice, of vengeance, But, you know, no matter how many times Batman saves Gotham City from the latest Archville, the city is still mired in evil, isn't it? And we feel like its only hope to actually rise out of the sewers is the example of Commissioner Gordon. For truly good people to stand up at great risk themselves and say, enough is enough. I feel like Commissioner Gordon shows us He gives us a picture of what it means to be a good person. And he teaches us that goodness is not 
the sort of vague, bland, undefined quality, but that to be a good person requires an iron core of character that enables you to stand fast against evil. Today we're reflecting on goodness as the sixth of nine fruits of the Spirit. And even though the word good doesn't appear in Psalm 15, which Eli just read for us, clearly what David is sketching for us in this psalm is a picture of what it means to be a good man or a good woman before the face of God. The kind of person that at the end of their life, at their funeral, can be eulogized simply and without irony or hypocrisy with the words, this was a good person. That's my ambition for my life. I hope that's your ambition for your life, to be weighed in the balances and found to have been a person who stood for and represented goodness in this world. And for King David, what it means to actually be a good person, for him, it's all centered around God. For David, God is both the ultimate source and the highest touchstone of what it means to be good. And over and over again in these 150 psalms, the psalmist, whether it's David or someone else, affirms the Lord is good. That is one of the most fundamental convictions of Israel. The Lord, the Lord is good. And that's what we gather to confess together as the people of God in worship week after week. And when we say to God and to each other, the Lord is good, we are really saying, I think, two things. The first is that God's character is goodness through and through. We worship a God who cannot lie, who dispenses perfect justice. He acts in utmost righteousness and rectitude. Our God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He's utterly perfect. He is unswerving in his moral character, and in him there is no shadow or variation due to change. We worship a God of brilliant burning holiness, and evil cannot come near him. That is one way for God to be good as we confess him. But I think there's a second thing we're confessing, and that is this, that God is the source of goodness for all his creation. You know what? Our very existence this afternoon is a reflection of the overflowing and unceasing abundance of God. The mountain goats leaping on the hillsides and the birds singing in the trees, these things are all participating in the goodness of God. The infinite holy God chooses to share himself, his being, and his life with his creation. That is the only reason that there is a creation at all. And so when we celebrate the goodness of God, we're not just celebrating his moral rectitude, but we're also rejoicing in God's overflowing generosity to us. When I was a little boy, my mother taught me to pray with these simple words. Maybe you know them. God is great. God is good. Thank you for this daily food. And I think in that simple prayer, there is a whole world of profound theology. And therefore, When we talk about being a good person, we need to remember that my own goodness is not original with me. I can't generate it out of myself. It's not independent and self-contained. 
our goodness, our human goodness is always derivative. It flows from God. Only God has original goodness. And we just come to God to participate, to share in, to receive, and to reflect his own goodness. And therefore, I think it's actually quite significant the way David has framed the five verses of this very short psalm. Because the real question for him is not, what does it mean to be a good person? Who is truly righteous? His real question is this, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Ethics is all about worship. The choices we make for good or evil have meaning based on God. And of course, it's true that we need God as our ultimate standard of what is good and what is evil. Morality can't just float unsupported in the middle of nowhere. It must be grounded and built on something. And I think all human beings, unless they're educated otherwise, have an innate sense of right and wrong. We know that some choices are always evil, that there is justice and there is injustice. And we know that if good and evil are just expressions of personal preference or, or, or culture, then ultimately there's really no difference between Commissioner Gordon and, say, Carmine Falcone. But we know that there is a God who judges between good and evil, and God's character and God's commands give us the moral compass that steadies us in evil days. So yes, it's true that ethical choices come from God, but I think David is saying that they're also directed towards God. And the way David has framed this psalm suggests that my goodness and my righteousness, being a good person, isn't an end in itself. The ultimate goal of our choices and of the way that our character is shaped It's all about coming into and remaining in the presence of God. David is not some kind of philosopher who's interested in constructing some independent moral standard for himself. David is a man who is hungry for God. Listen to his heart in Psalm 27. One thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. The prime motivation for holiness is to be in the presence of God. That is the hunger, that is the thirst that drives this psalm. And so the question of Psalm 15 is, who are the kind of people who are fit for the presence of God, who are able to come into God's temple and remain there? Who are the guests who are welcome in God's home? And both the Old and the New Testaments make it very clear that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The very goodness of God forbids it. Only those who are aligned with God, who are in sync with him, who bow joyfully before him with their whole hearts and their whole lives, 
are able to stand before God's presence without being consumed. So I believe the Spirit of God is calling all of us today to some sober self-examination. Are we living in lies and pretense? Or are we genuinely good people who can come before God with a clear conscience? And in four verses, David rapidly sketches out for us the portrait of the good person. It's actually a bit surprising that it's not about ritual cleanliness, because you'd think all this language of ascending Mount Zion and going to the temple would make you think of this whole world of priests and Levites and ritual garments and ceremonial washings, this elaborate process to be fit to minister in God's temple. And David kind of goes by all that. And it's not, it's not wrong. Ritual is good. It's by God's command after all. But there's something deeper that God is after. But neither is David's answer, neither is his sketch, is it about the things that we would think of as spiritual or religious. He says nothing in the psalm about prayer, nothing about Bible reading, nothing about small groups, nothing about fasting, nothing even about faith or hope or love. Not that those things aren't important either. Those things are vital. But the test for God is how we live our ordinary daily lives. To have clean hands and a pure heart is about all those things that happen outside the church, outside of fellowship, outside of our quiet time, because being a good person can't be fenced off neatly in one corner of our lives. So let's just take a look at David's sketch a little more closely. A good person, fit for God's presence, according to verse 2, is the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from the heart. I want to make clear in the Old Testament, to be blameless doesn't refer to some kind of sinless legal perfection. It's about the integrity of our whole lives. To have a blameless walk means that the whole pattern of my life, the whole shape of my being, is dedicated to God and is open to him, for him to gaze upon for him to judge, for him to assess, to live with a clear conscience. And this person is someone who does what is righteous. Their life with God is evident in their actions and their choices. They actually do what is right and just. And this person speaks truth from the heart. There's no disconnect, in other words, between their heart and their words and their life. Because they're people of integrity. Here's what integrity means. Wholeness. Being one person through and through. The good person is not a mass of contradictions, thinking and feeling one thing, saying a second thing, and then doing a third thing. This is a person of total transparency. And if you could cut them open and see the cross-section, it would be goodness through and through. And this goodness expresses itself in social relationships. Look at verse 3. This is a person whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, who casts no slur on others. Goodness is not my private commodity where I selfishly craft my ticket to God while ignoring other people. Love of God is always demonstrated in love for my neighbor. 
And a good person, according to David, is someone who is very careful not to hurt or to damage other people. Someone who's striving to live at peace with everyone and to be a good member of their community. What David emphasizes is how we use our tongues in our relationships. James 3, you might remember, describes the tongue as a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. And James observes that with the same tongue, he sees people praising and blessing God in worship. And then with that same tongue, we curse human beings who have been made in God's image. It's so easy, isn't it, to go out and have coffee with a close friend and then to start whining and complaining about someone else. We actually, in a sick way, build our relationship on the shared pleasure of tearing down an absent person. All masked, of course, under Christian concern. The good person is especially careful with his or her words, words which are so powerful, refusing to slander and to tear down other people, either to their face or behind their backs. The good person is also someone who shares God's own attitude towards good and towards evil. He or she is someone who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord. The righteous have a holy contempt of evil people. And Psalm 15's sketch of the good person is the mirror image of Psalm 14's sketch of the evil person, the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. David says in that Psalm, they devour my people like they're eating bread. They frustrate the plans of the poor. These are not the kind of people the righteous person respects. However honored, however powerful they might be in the community, the the truly good person can't just kind of laugh and go along with these people eating in their homes as if justice was irrelevant. They know and they pray that God will sweep away these people from the earth. The good person gives social weight to those who truly deserve it. They honor those who fear the Lord. Fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom according to the Psalms. It means living your whole life in the awesome presence of God, aware that his eye is always upon you, knowing that every choice you make is accountable to him. Fearing God means giving God the weight that he has in the universe. And because the good person fears the Lord themselves, because they always sense his eye upon them, they are the person who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. You know, when an Israelite made an oath, they were doing so before God. They were making a solemn promise and then deliberately inviting God to smite them or destroy them or harm them if they would break their word. And someone with no fear of God before their eyes, the fool who believed, ah, there is no God, I'm not going to be judged, that person wouldn't hesitate to break their contract if it was no longer to their advantage because they don't believe that they're really accountable to God in the end. But the good person, being a person of truth and integrity, honors their promise even when it hurts them because we are people of 
our words, people of truth, just like the God that we worship. And the final few lines of David's sketch. The good person, the person who's ready for God's presence, who is welcome in God's home, is someone who lends to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. It's very striking that worship cannot happen where economic injustice is practiced. That is very important to God, as the prophets emphasize again and again and again. And all the way back in Exodus and Leviticus, the people of Israel were forbidden to charge interest to one another, especially to those who were in a desperate situation. Listen to what God commanded in Leviticus 25, for example. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger so they can continue to live among you. Don't take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at profit. Here's one way to demonstrate fear of the Lord. The protector of the widow and the orphan and the stranger. It's a sober awareness that profiting from the misery of others, profiting from the misery of those who find themselves in a desperate situation, is inviting the vengeance of God upon your own head. For Israel, compassion for the poor was a matter of justice, of social justice. Good people can't be content with just keeping the rules for themselves, making sure they don't violate the commandments, making sure they're acting in personal integrity. The good person actually goes beyond themselves to have compassion on the poor and take responsibility for them as their neighbors. And the flip side of that is that the righteous person does not accept a bribe against the innocent. You know, the same financial resources that can be used to help the needy can also be turned against them. And there's a temptation for those in positions of power to use their state to get kickbacks from people who should be judged impartially. And when bribery and corruption happen in societies, the whole society begins to unravel. And few things in Scripture seem to awaken God's anger as much as those who pervert justice. The good person is someone with an iron core, a strong character, so that even when surrounded by evil, even when living in a corrupt society, the person David seems to be describing is someone who has a courageous refusal to participate in these things. And they're standing, perhaps alone, as a witness against the darkness and as a sign of hope of God's goodness in the world. And for me, no story expresses that as vividly as that of the little town of Le Chambon in southern France. Le Chambon is on a plateau. It's about a 90-minute drive from Lyon. It's a bit unusual because it's a predominantly Protestant village in a historically Catholic country. And this is a town of only 5,000 people, very humble, ordinary, unimpressive people. And during World War II, 
when the northern part of France was under German occupation, the southern part had a collaborationist government. This little village of 5,000 people doubled in size, taking in 5,000 mostly children, 3,500 of whom were Jews. And the remarkable thing about Le Chambon, which happened nowhere else, was that the entire town of 5,000 people participated in providing food and shelter and fake identity documents, taking great risks under the very nose of the government. And it's clear that the people of the town did this because they had been discipled for many years by their faithful pastor, Andre Trocmé, who frequently ended his sermons in the little stone church with these words. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Go practice it. This is what the people heard again and again and again, Sunday after Sunday for many years. And they would walk out of this 400-year-old stone church and carved in stone over the door were the words, love one another. So these people, when the darkness came, didn't think of themselves as doing anything heroic or unusual. Their actions in saving these children were just a new expression of who they'd always been. And Pastor Andre's wife, Magda, explained how it began. She said, those of us who received the first Jews did what we thought had to be done. Nothing more complicated. It was not decided from one day to the next what we would have to do. There were many people in the village who needed help. How could we refuse them? She said, a person doesn't sit down and say, I'm going to do this and this and that. We had no time to think. When a problem came, we had to solve it immediately. Sometimes people ask me, how did you make a decision? There was no decision to make. There was no decision to make. Because over the years, the disciples of Jesus in that quiet little town had grown in a humble goodness that went to the very heart of who they were. So in the time of crisis, the easy choice, the selfish choice, the cowardly choice, the evil choice that most people in these occupied countries made, for them, was not even an option. There was no decision to be made. There was no need to pause and consider and weigh good versus evil. They were good people, and they simply acted out of who they were. And years after the war, Magda Trochme said, in the end, I would like to say to people, remember that in your life, there will be lots of circumstances where you will need a kind of courage, a kind of decision on your own, not about other people, but about yourself. This is what it means to be a good person. And most of us will not be called to express our goodness in a historical, heroic kind of way, but we are all called to be good people in whatever ordinary circumstances God has called us to. We don't get a special suit. We don't get a Batmobile. We don't have special powers. We're simply called to be men and women of righteousness, of goodness, and integrity. 
few years ago, I was struck by this sentence from Bruce Waltke's wonderful commentary on the book of Proverbs, which again and again talks about the righteous person contrasted to the evil. And here is how he defines what it means to be righteous. The righteous, the good person, is someone who is willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. The righteous person chooses the good of the community over their own benefit. Because good people bring good to those around them. And Waltke goes on to say that, of course, Jesus Christ is the supreme example of the righteous person who chooses to disadvantage himself for the sake of the community. And in the story of the gospel, we see Jesus, the one who possesses all things, who willingly divests himself of everything. He doesn't seek to hold on to his position and status at the right hand of God. He willingly relinquishes himself of those things. He takes on the form of a slave, and he goes all the way down to the humiliation of death for the salvation of the world. And in that, Jesus shows us what it means to be righteous and what it means to be good. It's not about stiff, cold rule-keeping to earn a certain score before God. Being righteous and being good is about bringing life to others, about experiencing and then expressing the abundance of God flowing outward in blessing. Goodness is not original with us. It is not self-generated. We receive it from God as a fruit of the Spirit. We receive God's abundance. We celebrate We rejoice that our Lord is good, and then experiencing God's goodness and life and abundance in our lives, we then express it to others. Doing the good works that God has prepared for us beforehand to do. We're able to ascend the holy mountain. We're able to dwell with confidence in the presence of God. Because the blood of Jesus has given us forgiveness and cleansed us of all the ways that we fall short of goodness, and he has given us his spirit to renew us and shape us in his good and righteous image. And as David reminds us in the last verse of Psalm 15, whoever does these things will never be shaken. If we trust in Jesus... If we obey his words and put them into practice, Jesus himself teaches us we are building our lives upon the rock. And when the storms come and the winds blow, in the time of evil and judgment and crisis, we will not be swept away. God will protect us. God will preserve us. He will enable us to be a witness to his goodness and life in the world. And he will bring us up the heavenly mountain to live in his temple forever. So, acknowledging that we do not have goodness in ourselves, shall we bow our heads and ask for God to pour his goodness out on us? Heavenly Father, source of all good, we rejoice that you are indeed a good God. We have no good apart from you.
It is your face that we seek, O Lord. And our deepest longing is to dwell in your presence. To live in your house. To behold your face. We confess again before you, Lord, the ways that we have fallen short, the ways that we do lack integrity in our lives, uh, the sins of our hearts, the sins of our tongues, the sins of our hands. We ask that you would cleanse us again by the blood of Christ and renew us by your Holy Spirit, O Lord. We need to be changed. We need to be transformed. We pray that you would take us and make us into truly good people who bring blessing into this world, who are of benefit to our community, who stand for what is good and right and true. People, most of all, who one day are able to stand before you, perfectly conformed to the image of your Son, seeing and possessing and reflecting your own goodness. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.